This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Hey, Dan. Hey, how are you, Marika? Another episode. Hi, museum people. Welcome hey, back. Thanks for tuning in again. How's your memory? What you... <laughs> I have excellent memory. Thanks for really? asking. What do you remember? Um, I remember events and places and yeah. What's the first thing that you remember as a kid? I remember being on a plane and looking out the window on a flight to Texas when I was three and seeing the small houses. I vaguely remember watching a black and white television with... John F. Kennedy's casket draped with a flag and being drawn by horses and a carriage. How old were you? I was, I was three. I was three. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's the first memory. It's weird how stuff like that. But some of it seeps in. Isn't that why you're meant to bring your baby to the Museum of Fine Arts and look at art? And they yeah. have those programs for babies right. because right. It, it doesn't make a difference. Well, that's what I'm fascinated about your interview with Nate DeMeo and his podcast, Memory Palace. Um, so I, you know, I find it interesting that he positions Memory Palace as sort of a historical enterprise and yet calls it Memory Palace. And that word memory, I've been rolling this around a little bit. Well, of course, memories and, and history are two separate things. There are historical facts and then there's memory and both are important. Yeah. And both are true, but completely different mm. and can be relied on differently. Listening to some of the episodes that uh, that he's produced, and it's now in the hundreds, and they're short vignettes, and they are dreamlike almost. And there there is that quality then of, even though you obviously didn't know this person or you didn't experience the event, they kind of strike this memory chord of some kind, probably in almost everybody. He captures a feeling for sure, in the way he tells those stories. And uh, it's a very important aspect of history that I think the folks in scholarly history, even public history as it's known, they could learn a few lessons from him. I think so. You know, in the field, we've been talking about storytelling for years and how important it is to not just present the facts, but to weave some emotion, tension, um, climax into a into the work that we do to just reach people at their, their core. We are mm. humans. We love stories. And that's how we have sustained our cultures. So he's tapping into that. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Up there on the white horse, how could he not remember? What with the way that scent and sound and certain movements can suddenly conjure the past and invite it to ride beside you for a moment. And so William Henry Harrison at 68 years old, astride a horse once again, feeling the saddle beneath him, leather bridle rough in his ungloved hands, the familiar clop and sway and smell and stride of the animal, cold air in his lungs in that late winter morning in 1841. How could he not think back to a November morning in the frosted pre-dawn 30 years before, when he rode another horse, wheeled and reared and charged, and shouted out orders to his men, a thousand soldiers under his command, under attack in the night by 700 Shawnee warriors who'd sought to surprise them 
But Harrison had thought they might and had his men sleep dressed for the fight. Rifles at the ready, and by daybreak, the raiders had retreated. And Harrison rode through the encampment, counting the dead. 63 men on his side. Somewhere near so how do you know Nate? He's not, he's not a historian. I, I hang out with other people, not just historians, Dan. <laughs> you got that wild side. In <laughs> All your... right. My husband used to work with Nate at Marketplace. That's not a marketplace. That's NPR. NPR, yep. Right. Yeah, my husband is a, a recovering public radio journalist, and so he knows a lot of podcasts and podcast people. I met Nate at a PRX event here in Cambridge. They released This American Life, Radiotopia. They have a whole suite of podcasts that I'm sure our listeners love. Mm. And Nate, uh, I met him, and he he gave this presentation where he talked so vividly about being at the Harvard Museum of Natural History Mm -hmm. and talking about the glass flowers. And my husband just leans over and says, you got to get him for the podcast. And he, of course, he was more than willing and well, so generous. How did you What kind of pitch did you get? Oh, I just said, I don't know. I was maybe like a couple of glasses of cheap white wine in. And I says, Nate, <laughs> you need to be on my podcast. And he's like, yeah, okay. We underestimate how generous people are, especially if they, they love what we love. So museum people, don't cut yourself short. There go you after go. what you want. Well, I'm glad it worked out. So the interview you end up doing was he's in California and you are here. Yeah, it was a completely new uh, adventure for us, Dan, yeah. on the podcast. Because usually we are interviewing people in the, in the same room together with two microphones, and it's great. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Nate is in L.A., and I said, well, I don't know what to do. And he was like, uh, yeah, we just do a tape sync. Kurt will tell you what to do. <laughs> He's so, a pro. <laughs> yeah, he knows what to do. I yeah. felt totally confident. Um, and so we were. I, I got him on the phone and we recorded the interview. All right. So let's hear how this went. <laughs> Here's my interview with Nate DeMeo. Hello. Hey, Nate. It's Marika calling. How are you? I'm good. Um, welcome and thanks for talking to me and museum people. I'm more than happy to be. As I understand, you grew up in Rhode Island. Is that right? Yes, I did. When the boat landed um, for both sides of the family, um, it landed in Providence and... Uh, so you must have visited a lot of great historic places growing up, museums, etc. Did you have a favorite? Um, yeah, I really love the. Actually, really love the the uh, the RISD museums. I, I am a big fan of art museums, but in part, sort of art museums as history museums. In my head, as a kid, you know, just really those things. That's those feel like what museums are. <laughs> you know, these uncanny ability to kind of uh, take one away to a sort of different time and place. And then as I got a little bit older, I, uh, I stumbled into the Peabody Museum up at Harvard in my 20s and uh, absolutely fell in love with it. And part of it was this sort of feeling of transport, you know, that uh, you know, not only does it have, um, particularly when it comes to the, the glass flowers, you know, some true treasures that, that, you know, and some of the Native American artifacts in particular are things you're, you're, you're not going to see uh, anywhere else you know, on earth, uh, uh, some of them. Um, the thing that really struck me was the space itself that, um, you know, that it's creaky floorboards, um, and it's antiquated displays, um, were transporting. Um, but I will tell you that as a patron, um, I have always loved that oldness and part of what, um, draws you to draws has drawn me, um, to museums, um, is its feeling of whether it's, you know, I don't necessarily need to step into another time. But um, to step, you know, out of one's contemporary life 
um, into a space that is engaged um, with historical life, um, sometimes a little bit of oldness um, helps you get there. So our listeners who might not be familiar with your podcast, The Memory Palace, can you just give a few sentence description about what you do? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty simple format when it all comes down to it. You know, I was in public radio for a really long time and, and I was looking for, uh, you know, I loved history. And um, but there wasn't a ton of uh, frankly, there isn't a ton of history on public radio. And I always kind of wondered why. And, and some of it was that. Um, it was just this sort of sense that, uh, you know, if you tuned into the beginning of the hour and you learned and you heard that you were going to learn about the Korean War and you felt like you didn't care about the Korean War, then you're not going to listen. And I just had this sense that, like, you know, that there was a way to do these things in, in short formats. There was a way to, to you know, come up with, you know, to focus the, the, the storytelling in a way that, that you could, you know, be moved um, and informed uh, quickly, more quickly. And uh, I wanted to find ways to do that. And so... The, the podcast many years ago at this point, eight or nine years ago, started as a way to test out that theory with the hopes of doing an hour-long public radio program. But um, very quickly, I discovered that what I really liked doing was what the Memory Palace currently is, which is writing short essays um, about you know, moments, um, people, movements in uh, American history um, and putting them to music, I suppose a little bit like This American Life or something like that. I think one of the things that I have a challenge in sort of explaining, I've never gotten good at the ele elevator elevator pitching it, <laughs> um, is that um, the show is also fairly idiosyncratic. You know, I think that, that um, you know, these are things, you know, what makes a Memory Palace story is something that I am moved by and that I find interesting. And so it's hard to say. They're not all things that have slipped through the cracks. They're not all like surprising facts about history. They're not all things you've never heard about. Um, they are things that happen to move me. And as, and as such, um, you know, listening from episode to episode, um, while they're consistent in their aesthetics and they're consistent in their point of view, um, they bounce around, you know, from era to era, they bounce around from subject to subject. Um, and, you know, hopefully the listener, um, kind of enjoys, uh, the variety of that ride. Yeah, what I really enjoy is that they are stories about about history and about people and about events that you could imagine there's a museum that has an object or a collection relating to those people, um, but you don't have to be there. You don't have to go to this place to encounter this story. Yeah. And you tell it so so wonderfully and so quickly and you know you just you get right down to it it's well, really great i appreciate that i mean i think that it is the getting right down to it that that like i remember watching the the ken burns uh documentary about lewis and clark i think it's like a six-hour documentary it's two three-hour parts or something like that but the only part i really remember is this one scene in which having basically realized that there's no northwest passage like they've reached the end of the missouri river they thought they were on it it has trickled to a halt they are staring at the Rocky Mountains and they can turn back or they can drag their boats over the Rocky Mountains and they decide to drag their boats over the Rocky Mountains. And the, like the, the power of that moment from, you know, and I find that so sort of like moving and inspiring and bananas. It's just like, it's such like a cool thing. And I always, and I wondered if there was a way to tell that a story like that. Um, without having to have watched the two and a half hours. Like, is there a way that I could synthesize what is powerful about, you know, the Lewis and, Lewis and Clark's journey and the story that they're on to, you know, within a much shorter time to get you to that moment 
um, more quickly. And uh, you know, ultimately, that's you know, I'm really trying to do that to like find find you know to provide enough context, you know, to put yourself in the shoes of of the characters, um, you know, to to kind of like establish like kind of a link between you and these people who've kind of gone before. And to um, and to essentially like find a way through words, you know, through the words and the cadence and the music, um, to move the audience in the same way that I may have been moved, um, you know. But to do it in seven minutes, where it took me, you know, the three hundred pages of the book to get there. So something that I've noticed in listening to the podcast is that you often focus on people or events not typically represented in history or even in museums, right? People of color, mm-hmm. women. LGBTQ people, people who are not historical celebrities. So what is your thought process on that? It's interesting. Like, uh, it's certainly intentional, but at the same time, um, you know, because of the way that I, I choose stories is ultimately fairly idiosyncratic. It, you know, it is that I have all these tabs open, and if one day something jumps out and, and, and moves me, I take note of that, and I kind of ask, well, why is that moving me? And, you know, so some of it is just that there are there are things that are happening in our society that I'm thinking about you know, all the time, um, you know, about that the, these, the, these are the political issues that I am thinking about. And so that the things in the past that I am drawn to are often the places where that, that are resonating with what I'm thinking about in the present. One of my favorite, personal favorite stories, um, you know, one of the, the figures that who, when I kind of discovered, kind of fell in love with in a way, and, and, and she sort of stayed with me, is this aviator, Harriet Quimby, um, and there is not a ton written about Harriet Quimby because she did not live that long and because um, she was not, you know, considered particularly historically noteworthy. And so you know, th- there are very slim volumes and, and very brief entries um, in encyclopedias of, you know, famous women or encyclopedias of aviators or or residents of Massachusetts or whatever it might be. And so when it all comes down to it, a short story is is all there can be about her. So there, that is one of the tools, um, you know, one of the, the good benefits of, of my format is that there are these stories that are just as powerful, you know, as uh, Dunkirk um, in, in their way. Um, and they are, you know, small stories of, of lives that, you know, had a, had, had a smaller historical footprint, but to tell them um, beautifully and to, or to attempt to tell them beautifully and, you know, to tell them and to, you know, work on their production with the same rigor as I might, you know, uh, use when, you know, telling the story of Dunkirk or something like that, it has always struck me as valuable. This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Let's just remember this time. Let's just remember a woman named Harriet Quimby. Born in 1874 in Arcadia, Michigan, Her parents were farmers, and the farm failed. Maybe it was their fault, I don't know. But they moved to San Francisco when Harriet's in her early 20s, and unmarried, and living with her parents because that's what she did then. And let's remember that she wanted to see the world, wanted to live a bigger life, bigger than the failed farm, bigger than the room in her parents' house. And let's remember that it's 1900 or 1901 or something like that, And just about the only thing that she could do that might do that, that might open up that world. The only thing that was open to her in 1900-something was to write. Women, some women, were allowed to do that. Even if what Harriet Quimby could write was limited, was corseted. But writing let her travel, and it got her to New York. 
and she took pictures and wrote for a national magazine, and she wrote screenplays, tales of adventures that she herself would never have. But let's remember an October day out on Long Island. Cool autumn light, breeze off the bay, at Belmont Park where the horses ran, where they run still. But on this day, the field was cleared and the white rails were pulled up, and the infield was turned into a runway for the second international aviation exhibition. Planes, wooden frames and propellers, bicycle tires, rose and banked, and made slow, low circles over the gathered thousands. Let's remember that this is a handful of years after the Wright brothers flew for 12 seconds above the dunes at Kitty Hawk. And the people below were craning and cheering, simply because they got to watch men fly. And Harriet Quimby was with them on the ground. And she went home to file her story. And then she learned to fly. The next year, Harriet Quimby rose 150 feet in the air, circled five times, and landed within an acceptable distance from a designated point in the grass, and became the first American woman to get her pilot's license. Let's remember that it's 1910, and women can't vote or be engineers or get divorced or buy effective birth control or... You get all that. But here is Harriet Quimby, flying, rising above. Let's just embrace the obvious metaphor. Let's just see her in the open-air cockpit, not far above the trees, but high enough to see Long Island Sound to her left, in the open sea to her right. Men and women down below, looking up with widened eyes. Let's just remember... Let's remember the life she led thereafter, as a traveling daredevil, a woman among men, becoming the first woman to fly at night, to fly across the English Channel, the first person to fly the length of Mexico City. Someone had to be. Let's note her death, just two years later, 1912, a crash, Squana, Massachusetts. She was flung from the cockpit simply because they hadn't thought to put seatbelts in planes yet. Let's note the fall and note the fear. But let's remember her flying. Let's just remember her flying. I'd love to ask you about your experience as an artist in residence for the Met, um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So how did that relationship come about? Um, about 18 months or so ago, um, I got... You know, it was a cold email um, from uh, out of the blue from uh, this woman named Lamore uh, Tomer, uh, who is the she's the head of sort of uh, uh, Met Live Arts. So, um, you know, art presentations, uh, you know, uh, concerts and things at the Met. And um, as someone who loves museums and as someone who's, who, uh, you know, has has been doing you know history narratives uh, in a fairly prominent way for a long time. Um, it, I, uh, in some ways I've been kind of bummed that like institutions haven't reached out at me, <laughs> reached out to me, um, to do audio things or, or to consult on X, Y, and Z as they wrestle with some of these, some of these questions that in some ways I feel like my podcast is, you know, is sort of hinting at answers to. So it's been kind of, uh, in some ways it's been a little frustrating to be doing this for a number of years, but not sort of, um, find a, find an in or find a connection with the museum community or the sort of like larger history community. And so I got this email um, out of the blue from her and, and they were working on, um, they were installing their first period room in 40 or 50 years. Um, and, and it was the dressing room of 
the wife of the the industrialist Collis Huntington, and uh, uh, and who then herself became a very prominent art collector. And it was the, this dressing room that she herself um, kind of co-designed, um, and they were installing it, um, you know, along with the McKim Mead and White uh, staircase and and you know the the colonial you know living room and all of the, all of the kind of beautiful period rooms that they have there. And so, um, essentially, they had a little bit of extra money to do some sort of uh, do some sort of event um, or production around uh, that opening that they were doing. And uh, she uh, thought the Memory Palace uh, would be a good fit. Um, and but uh, very smartly, um, she also had this. Uh, you know, she wanted uh, the Memory Palace uh, to come in as the artist in residence. She wanted me to come in the artist in residence, but knew that. Um, the institution would have a hard time with that. You know, the artists in residence has typically been um, uh, choreographers and uh, jazz musicians and and sort of things from the finer arts, the finer performance arts. And so uh, she kind of wanted to Trojan horse it. She wanted to to bring me in, you know, do a do a work for hire, show people what I might be able to do, um, so that she could uh, get the my residency approved. And and uh, and apparently that went well. Um, and then about then several months later, I, I was named the artist in residence for this year. Um, but the best thing about it and the difference between doing something as a work for hire um, has been I've encouraged over and over again to uh, to think of it like to, to be I'm reminded a lot that I am the artist in residence and that my goal there is to make art that is inspired by um, the collection. Um, and it's been this fantastic process because as someone who loves museums and specifically loves that museum, it's such a gift to be able to walk around and be like, God, this piece is so amazing. Or boy, this, this text is so strange. Like, like who is this guy? Um, and then to be able to send an email and say, Hey, who's the person who bought this thing? And then talk to the person who bought that thing or the person who's written the, written the book on it um, and ask them any question. But beyond that, it's also, it's not just, you know, to tap into their knowledge, it's to tap into their passion. Like, uh, you know, my MO when I very, when I first started was to, you know, sit down with you know the curators of 19th century American sculpture. And the first question is always like, what's the thing that, what's the piece of work that you walk by? And every time you like, you can't not look at every time you walk by, you know, what's the, what's the thing that you brought in here that, you know, that you are most proud of bringing in and why? And it's the, you know, the passion of the people that are working at these museums and their uh, like their wonderful sort of like you know nerdy obsessions um, that you know have brought this stuff to the museum, and that they work so hard on articulating the stories of these these uh, amazing objects or amazing artists or you know amazing historical figures. Um, you know, they're often, frankly, sadly, is this kind of like gap between um, what they are passionate about and what they know. And what they are able to tell the audience, you know, and some of that is the limits of the size of the placard. And some of it is the you know, inherent challenges of the physicality of the space, you know, and some of it is that if you have a room where Washington crossing the Delaware, where Washington is crossing the Delaware on wall, one wall, it's hard to get people to turn around and look at the other wall. You know, there are those challenges and, and it's been fun for me to uh, on some level, like, you know, kind of like take their passion and then kind of like synthesize it and maybe interpret it in my own way. But essentially, um, 
Yeah, like in some ways, it's really tell tell the stories that as as curators, um, they might not, in some ways, might not have the ability to do because they've never, you know, they're not, they don't, you know, they may be, you know, gifted gifted interpreters, but but there is the difference between a story and interpretation, and a storyteller is not a skill that 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 you need to have to be a an, you know incredible curator. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry, I, I meandered on that one. But it's it's been it's been such a heady experience that there's a lot to say. Yeah. So what are what have the the criticisms of the collaboration been? Um, you mean negative feedback <laughs> or? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I understand her desire to do it. I think it's it makes a lot of sense. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure all of our listeners now are like, how do we run out and, and get an artist in resonance of a podcaster? But, um, surely for an organization like the Met, she must've faced some, some naysayers. Well, I, and yeah, you know, they're, I mean, are you creating art or are you interpreting? Yes. I think that, um, you know, I think she may have shielded me from the naysayers, uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think that, I mean, and some of it is the nature is the nature of the work itself. Like, you know, for as idiosyncratic as the memory palace might get, it's a, it's a populist enterprise. Like, like I, you know, I want people to connect with, with these works. Like I, I am, I am bringing, I'm trying to merely get people excited about and moved by things that move me. You know, it's like, I want to share. There's something um, very sort of welcoming and kind of, I'd like to think kind of like open hearted about the whole thing. And, um, you know, and then, but it's, but the truth of the matter is, um, to open up interpretation at all within the museum um, is a real leap of faith on their part, and I really recognize that, um, and I also, res- you know, and I really respect that. And so, in in, in trying to be, res- in, you know, and partially in trying to be respectful, um, you know, I am, uh, you know, I'm I'm sort of t- I'm taking, you know, I am definitely sort of taking their kind of wishes in, into account. Um, but that said, it, it is also, um, it is the things that strike me. It is the works that connect with me. The beauty of that is if there are a hundred works and only one connects with me, that is still someone's baby in there. That is still a curator's, uh, you know, uh, you know, topic of fascination. Um, and they are more than happy to kind of like, you know, have a conversation and it might be, you know, done in part to, to help steer, help steer my interpretation but um you know without a doubt uh you know to the person um so far um i think that you know people have have been very sort of kind about you know understanding kind of what i'm doing and you know understand that like I, they struggle with the limits of like the size of a plaque all the time like they str- they struggle with the fact that they cannot tell all of the story they struggle with the fact that they can't get all the information that they might want to get out or that they can't foreground um the kind of like uh, meta story of why this you know thing is important um to what they're trying to do in the museum um so that they have a lot of sympathy when you know for when uh i might be missing corners of the story in order to tell you know uh in order to tell uh, this other corner of the story um, so I don't know, like, I, I think that, that, but, you know, but the other, the other aspect, and this is the thing that I would say to the people that might be thinking of like, oh, this actually sounds like a neat sort of thing, thing to do at our institution. Um, you know, 
you like you are you already you're telling your story plenty you know like you have you have every opportunity to tell your story you know you have every opportunity to you know, provide the institution's interpretation or provide the head of the museum's you know the the institution or individual interpretations or individual curators interpretations um to open that up to others particularly at a time where you know as i've said like through audio through through you know there are your institution can physically handle having multiple stories told like you can um you know have an official audio guide and one that's interpreted um you know in different ways uh the institution can literally handle the physicality of that and so then it's on the institution to 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 ask whether they can personally handle that and uh, I don't know, like if you are trying to uh, find ways to appeal to the diversity of your audience um, and find ways to, uh, you know, tell a, a younger story, for instance, merely one that, that might draw in, you know, your future donors and your future patrons um, as you look at, you know, your aging audience and think all those things, that, that all the challenges of museums, um, you're going to have to find ways to be. Uh, sort of open to uh, different voices within the museum. Yeah, so one thing that museums often suffer from is a bit of a perfection paralysis. Sure. You know, we're afraid to try new things because we might fail, and, you know, the public looks up to us as a source of information, yeah. so we can't not always be correct 100% of the time. So um, what? how would you advise museums to take a leap of faith and just go outside of our comfort zone? What should we do? Well, I think that... Um... I, you know, I mean, I, I, I'll reiterate it because I do believe in it. I mean, I think that for, just bring, it, bring in people that can tell a story, you know, even it, whether it's to work with you on, you know, I did a, like a consulting day. It was super fun with the um, Washington Irving House in, in upstate New York. And it was merely just like, the, you know, the people are essentially just like, hey, there's something kind of wonky about our tour. How come it's interesting in the beginning and not interesting at the end? Um, you know, and because I'm a storyteller, I was like, oh, that, well, that's because, you know, he stops writing because, because you're kind of telling this like linear story. And so you just, you need to find ways to like, you know, hit different points when you pass through the house, you know, like you got to think of it as like a story or story you're telling. Um, but anyway, like find people, you know, find people that who you personally find out there who are already engaging people. Um, in the areas that you want to engage people. So if, if that is to tell a historical story, um, bring in histor historical storytellers to, to you know, help you tell your stories a little bit better, you know, smarter, more efficiently. Um, but beyond that, like in order to kind of like take the leap, I would say just like, you know, before you invite someone in or before you say, hey, go do my audio tour, just like just check in with your core principles, like check in with like, you know, I'm willing to make this leap as long as things are truly factual. I am willing to make this leap uh, as long as, uh, you know, there's this pocket of donors that we fundamentally can't, can't offend. Um, and if, and if that's, if your institution rides in it, then don't mess with that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, you can, you don't need to, you can get into the water as slow as you want. Um, you don't need to, you know, jump off the bridge to get there. Um, but it's, 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 it, it, the swimming is good, I'll say. <laughs> so it's, it's worth bringing, I don't know, it's, it, there's so much opportunity. Um, and there's so, and frankly, you know, th through audio and other means, there are shortcuts 
to doing the things that, that you know, there's shortcuts to doing the things that feel so daunting. Well, Nate, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And um, thanks for chatting and best of luck. Yes, thank you so much. What I loved about talking with Nate is I think he seemed flattered wanting to be on the podcast because mm. he's, he, he expressed like a little bit of disappointment that he hadn't been asked by more museums. Yeah. Right? Which <laughs> I don't know how you took it. I don't know what he expected. I think that he thinks he, the work he does is extremely beneficial to museums. And I agree. Um, what I wanted, we didn't get into it, but what I kind of wanted to say was, well, Nate, we don't have any money or time. I looked at it as, first of all, this whole podcasting thing, as we know, not everybody listens to it. I don't think we really know what podcasts are, what they can do. It's kind of this new medium that is growing in popularity, perhaps, but not every museum thinks, oh, wow, this is just like so great. Well, I think people love podcasts, but I think that they love them personally. Yeah. And most museums think that they need to do a podcast. They interview curators and et cetera. And so they're providing extra content yeah. um, for people who go to the museum. I think what Nate is doing is different. He's he's creating um, more in-depth, beautiful, interpretive labels, sound labels. Mm. And we've been doing audio tours in our museums but they're mostly, they're just like walking tours inside the museum. We're not telling these beautiful stories. And, and he is. And, you, and what I loved about what he's doing is you don't have to be in the place, right. you know, to experience that. So we can learn about X person and their experience. And he is not creating a historical label. He is creating a story. And I can, you know, when I asked him about being at the Met, you can imagine behind the scenes, well, like the conversations right, that we're so having. Let's, a let's staff talk meeting, about this. Right? I mean, because that is really it in a nutshell. You know, we're talking about. And he's disappointed that it, museums haven't reached out to him. Finally, they do. The Met of all places reaches out and not just says, "Oh, let's you know do a little something." They they make him artist in residence. So it, all of a sudden, by doing that, they are conveying upon the entire podcasting field, including you and me, Marika. We are artists. <laughs> yeah, that's generous. Well, yeah, but seriously. Okay, so the question is, is what he is doing, is it art? Is it history? You ask him that very question. You you ask him, are you uh, an artist or are you interpreting? Were you satisfied with his answer? No. <laughs> so what do you think? Because I think what he's doing is he's, a ch he's, he's aspiring to be an artist, honestly. I think that he's, he's aspiring through his words the, to create a poetry uh, evoke an emotion. Uh, my question is, is it sort of like historical fiction? Okay, so we understand that he is trying to create art. Mm -hmm. That's a given. And the Mets put their seal and the of Mets approval says on he it, is which is awesome. Yeah. Um, but you are, you're, you're looking at it a little differently and you think maybe not because he's, he's storytelling and is storytelling art. Is Hamilton art or history? Art. It's not history, for sure. Well, does it have to be one or the other? I don't know. Well, that's a good question. I don't think it does. It's, it's, history is, is, is a lens. Well, here's what I like about Hamilton. Here's what I like about his podcast is that, as a matter of fact, it's a point of entry into the world of 
the historical imagination. Now, especially with his artist-in-residence status at the Met, he is creating the series of podcasts that actually ruminate on a particular work of art. And so that very directly, if people listen to that, they want to go see that piece of art. Right on. Yeah, so it's going to, you know, no doubt, it's an avenue. A lot of, if you're like a history scholar, you're going to sniff at it and say, ah, that's not history. That, you know, that's just entertainment or that's whatever it is. It's puffery, perhaps. But it's a way, I think, of engaging people who may not otherwise be interested in history. I loved his suggestion of having multiple museum audio guides. Yes. This intrigues me. 30 years ago is the first Acousta guide or whatever. It's like, oh, wow, high tech. You can actually have a curator walking along with you. But it's still all pretty much the official version of what it is that we want you to hear in our museum. And he suggested that why wouldn't you have multiple audio guides? Well, we do, I think, tailor in-person tours, right? Mm. Like if you could have a kid give a tour, Um, And with some labels, right? Some people have come in and rewritten labels or lent their voice that way. But audio is different. I think we the technology hasn't been there Mm. for audio, and now it is. Well, there's an expense too, I suppose. Yes, but um, just three years ago, four years ago, um, you didn't have the recording device already on your smartphone that's in your pocket. Right. Like, you know, you and I are working with um, a few pieces of semi-expensive equipment right now, right? Mm. We have microphones, we have a tape recorder, um, but that's our that's our biggest expense. We could just be taping on our phones, yeah. and it could be okay. So it's getting more democratized, mm-hmm. podcasting and storytelling via yeah. audio. So, uh, yes, there's. I think that there's. This opens a whole new opportunity for um, kids groups at museums. You know, um, adult groups. Well, yeah, you groups name of it. people like of you know disenfranchised populations. Um, you know, we talked. Yeah, with, or you could go full geek and get in behind the scenes. You could get in. You know, I mean, exactly. there's a lot of possibilities. Anybody can make a podcast, and you can put it out, and mm. um, you can easily just I, I, I say easily because I don't do it but throw it up on iTunes or even on the website mm. your own website whatever and just has anybody done that has any like is there a an unofficial iTunes uh, podcast tour of the Met or the MFA or something like somebody just said I mean, right I mean that'd be kind of yeah, cool yeah, yeah. because you see that all happen all the time where people like on the DIY channels of YouTube hacking a particular thing or, you know, here's how you can do this kind of thing better and how to bake a cake in a certain manner or whatever. I mean, couldn't you just say, here's my tour of the MFA and what I liked about it? Absolutely. uh, Like we see that with walking tours, right? There are these apps where you can create your own walking tour and other people can take your walking tour. And sure, why not a podcast? I mean, you talk about crowdsourcing. Yeah. You're all thinking it too. I know. Mm, I know. Well, Marika, it was a successful experiment that we're able to do long distance interviews and have it sound like something as opposed to a tin can. So that's that's something. We are branching out. So um, Mm. museum people across the country, across the world, send us your pitches. We're open. Well, there's another episode, the penultimate episode of the season, Marika. (laughs) Thanks for sticking with us, museum people. Take care, museum people. See you next time. We love you. Next time on Museum People. We are the proverbial dying New England mill town. Right. Boarded up building says, danger, danger. 
I know that my staff is very happy to have a place where they can do good work, that they can be proud of, and where they always feel safe. I have to sign off, Dan. That's my... That's a wrap. Somebody's knocking at the door. I gotta go, everybody. Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening.